This episode is sponsored by More Than A Number, the brand new podcast from ICAEW. Search More Than A Number in your podcast app to hear Louise Cooper and thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Hello and welcome to The Edition, the Spectator's weekly podcast where we discuss some of the most important and interesting issues within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, as the Tories continue to lead in the polls, I speak to Alistair Campbell about what Remainers can do to turn things around. Plus, Venice is holding an independence referendum, but will that help with the city's problems? And finally, is Instagram the future of poetry? First up, if Boris Johnson wins the December election, Brexit will almost certainly be a done deal. Yet despite the high stakes, James Forsyth writes in the cover piece this week that Remainers still haven't been able to unite themselves and are risking splitting the vote come polling day. So, what's going on? James joins me now, together with Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair's former communications chief and a member of the People's Vote campaign. He writes in this week's issue about the meltdown going on in the People's Vote campaign over the last month. So James, what exactly seems to be going wrong for Remainers right now? I think the fundamental problem for the Remain side in this election is that no one party is getting more than 50% support from Remain voters. While as the Tories are now up to 71% support from Leave voters and that number is is rising. And I think this is the the problem for the Remain side in this election is that the Leave side is becoming increasingly unified under Boris Johnson. I mean, he has succeeded essentially in his strategic objective, which was to turn the Tories into a sufficiently Brexit party to push to squeeze down Nigel Farage's vote and then to try and win a general election on that basis. Right now, if the election was held tomorrow, he would succeed in that aim. Now, there are still three weeks to go and there's many a slip twixt cup and lip. But I think the I think the fundamental problem for the Remain side is A, the competition between the different parties on that side of the political spectrum, and, and Jeremy Corbyn himself. And and Corbyn is a problem for Remain in, in, in three ways. First of all, he wants to maintain some Brexit ambiguity. You know, nine times last night he wouldn't say which side he would campaign for in the second referendum he wants. So when the Lib Dems say, but Labour are under Jeremy Corbyn are not a Remain party, they are right. The second problem with Jeremy Corbyn is that he is proposing a very left-wing economic prospectus. And that makes quite a few people who backed Remain in 2016, you know, including feel that a Corbyn premiership is not a price worth paying to stop Brexit. And then I think the third problem is is the moral problem. You are turning around if you say to people, you must vote tactically, you must vote for Jeremy Corbyn's candidate in this seat because he is the person who's most likely to win. You are asking to risk putting into Downing Street as Prime Minister someone who invited a man who had issued the blood libel suggesting that Jews mix their, their holy bread with the blood of Gentiles to the House of Commons terrace for tea to be Prime Minister. That That is quite a big step. You, know, you have to really believe in remain to think that moral compromise is something worth doing. Alistair, you clearly really believe in remain. I mean, is Jeremy Corbyn the main problem for Remainers? He's been a problem for sure. But I think I think James sets out the kind of context of this quite well. I was surprised that 
Nigel Farage ultimately bottled it in terms of pulling out of any seats where there are Tories. I think that's where he could have made a real impact. And I think it's true. You know, I'm doing sort of quite a bit of tactical campaigning at the moment and going into different places. And it's quite interesting, for example, if you go to where Luciana Berger is and, you know, the Tories, okay, there she's obviously massively pro-Remain, left the Labour Party because of anti-Semitism. And and yet you, you did hear people, I think the Tories there, their line is, you know, if you vote for her, you get Corbyn. I can see how that 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 could pr- prove to be a problem, and it's true that you. I mean, I I am a, in Keir Starmer's seat. I think Keir is one of Labour's better front benchers. I think he's a good MP. I feel comfortable about voting for him. I also do feel comfortable in a funny sort of way because I don't think it's possible for Labour to get a majority. I cannot see that how they get from where they are now to get a parliamentary majority. I do feel reasonably comfortable when people literally, they do, they stop you and say, I live here, I hate Brexit, what the hell do I do? And most of the time you do end up, so tell me where you live, you look at the some of the sort of data that's out there, and I say, I think you're going to vote Labour. In other places, you're going to vote Lib Dem. In other places, you're going to vote SNP, whatever it might be. But I, you know, I agree. There's, I think we saw this in the debate. I mean, the debate was one of the most depressing political events I've ever witnessed in my life. And I think a lot of people feel disengaged from this election. It's going to be cold. It's going to be wet, all the rest of it. But I think also we're into the territory of least worst option. And the least worst option for me in terms of how do we somehow salvage something out of this mess is actually that you do get a hung parliament and it ends up with a people's vote. So do you think Jeremy Corbyn is a price worth paying for Remain? In, the, in these circumstances, yes. And um, and that does mean, except, I mean, for example, my partner Fiona, who's, you know, she's she feels much more strongly than I do that you can't do this. But she, and she's passionate about Remain as well. And I think lots and lots of people are going to have very, very, very difficult choices. I don't feel 100% comfortable about it, no. Um, there's lots about... Look, I'm, they expel me from the party. That's enough to make me pretty packed off with them. They spend most of their time sort of trashing the most successful leader of the Low Party there has ever been. I think they're fundamentally mis- wrong and misguided about quite a lot of policy positions. And for those reasons, I don't think they're going to get a majority. And, you know, and what was... Tra- I was at the CBI this week. I was doing an event on mental health on the same day as the three party leaders were doing their speeches. And it was quite extraordinary. I've been to lots of CBIs before when Tony Blair was leader and prime minister. And I mean, OK, you, they, they can be caricatured as a sort of, you know, well, probably broadly Tory audience. I'll tell you what, I didn't meet anybody who had a good word to say about Boris Johnson. And it wasn't just about Brexit, by the way. It was just about his character. It was about some of the crazy stuff that he does. A lot of it was about his lying. People actually get feeling, and I thought Corbyn made a mistake last night, by the way. I think he should have called out Johnson for being a liar. I know he doesn't like doing the personal stuff, but I think that has got through to the public. And the reason why people applauded last night, or laughed rather, when Johnson said the thing, of course, truth's important, is because they think he's a liar and they don't like it any more than they like the idea of Trump being president. But so what I found from these these, uh, guys at the CBI, I mean, the majority opinion, as I assessed it was, if Labour had a different leader with a slight, even just a slightly different message and strategy on the economy, they'd be up for supporting it. And that's the CBI. So I think it's, I, I th- my sense of John McDonnell is that he wants to project a slightly different, I mean, he's, he's not changing on policy, but in terms of the message and the, the kind of way that that is put across. But I think that, you know, the gaping centre ground is, is, is right there to be taken. 
James, do you think if the Tories look like they're steaming ahead, that's going to help Remain unite a bit more? I think if it wasn't for 2017 and what happened then, we would all be looking at the polling data in front of us and we wouldn't be discussing hung parliaments. But I think one of the things that is helping the Tories is the framing of this election. If you talk to, and the and the fact that that, that we in the media are kind of traumatised by what happened in 2017 and so are therefore kind of constantly kind of looking at the numbers and saying, oh, you know, it, it could still, the Tories could still fall short of the majority. Because I think what's interesting is you talk to lots of Tory candidates and Tory Lib Dem marginals, Tories trying to hold on. And what they say is they think that if their voters on polling day think that they have to vote Tory to stop a hung parliament, which might result in Corbyn being prime minister, they will. But if there was a sense that Boris Johnson was going to win a landslide, yeah. they would be in real trouble because these people would then vote Lib Dem. And I think at the moment, the hung parliament possibility works massively in the Tories' favour because Alistair is saying that, you know, all oh, he thinks that Corbyn would be restrained and all this. The fact is, on lots of the stuff where people are most worried about what Jeremy Corbyn's views are, the Prime Minister can act without actually that much recourse to Parliament. Parliament doesn't you know, make decisions about intelligence sharing. Parliament has limited ability to uh, interfere in the Prime Minister's ability to make foreign policy decisions. And I think that there is also a, a moral question about the character of a country if Jeremy Corbyn you know, were to walk through the front door of number 10. The only thing is, I think, and, I think it's neutralised by Johnson there. I don't, I don't think... I'm not saying for the public, I'm, uh, across the board, but, I, but I, I think that is what I mean about the least worst choice. And it was interesting last night in the debate how the anti-Semitism issue has clearly got through to the public in a very, very bad way for Labour. And I think Johnson's sense of kind of lack of sort of basic moral decency has got through to the public as well. Look, I think I'm not pretending this is easy or straightforward. And, you know, and the other thing, let's be honest, that, that, that some people on the Remain side, they, they kind of, you know, part of the, the anxiety of this election is, OK, well, maybe Corbyn gets in and actually he sort of does the dirty on the referendum anyway because he doesn't really believe in it. So none of this is straightforward. And, of course, you know, it's made been made far less straightforward by the fact that the People's Vote campaign has been taken off the pitch by somebody who should have known better. Well, Alice, you write about that in this week's issue. Can you explain to listeners sort of briefly what's happened there? Um, well, it's complicated, but, you know, essentially the People's Vote campaign, which is a coalition of several groups that came together, you know, different perspectives, but all fighting for a, to basically for the final, final say referendum. And one of the five groups, the biggest, Open Britain, which emerged from the losing campaign in 2016, therefore I think we should be a bit wary of it, chaired by this guy Roland Rudd, multi-millionaire business guy, brother of Amber Rudd, who developed what I can only call a kind of obsession with getting rid of two of the people, James McGrory and Tom Baldwin, who had made the People's Vote such a success and decided to do it on the day the election was called when we had a very, very well thought through and planned tactical voting plan ready to go. So... How he looks himself in the mirror, I don't know. As I say in your magazine, it's, it's sort of widely thought by friend and enemy alike that he's quite keen on the idea of Lord Rudd. I reckon his best route to that now is Boris Johnson because he's done more damage to the people's vote than Johnson's ever done. On the tactical voting front, it's an interesting question because there are two ways of thinking about it. One is that, you know, there are three different Remain tactical votings, at least that are out there, that voters is, voters are just going to find it confusing, especially because in lots of places the Lib Dems might come from third place to take the seat, so it's not straightforward. The other way of thinking about it is what happened in Scotland in 2017, which suggests 
that voters are quite capable of self-sorting without any great central direction. I mean, yeah. if you look at those yeah. Scottish results in 2017, it is, rem- it is remarkable how effectively unionists manage to tactical, tactically vote. I mean, there are a couple of cases like Stephen Geffen's seat where maybe if they'd realised a bit more, they could have done it. But, you know, they broadly got a sense of which unionist party in their area was most likely to take the seat off the SNP. And the SNP suffered a, a, a much worse result than anyone expected. I remember when the exit poll dropped, you know, one Tory said to me, well, I'm, a, I'm not sure this exit poll can be right because those numbers in Scotland, you know, we didn't expect to win 13 seats up there. So, so where's that come from? So, in, and, and so I wonder whether, you know, if English Remainers proved to be as, as skillful at tactical voting as Scottish Unionists were, then, then, then Boris Johnson is going to have a problem. But I, I think the, 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 I, I hope that's right. However, what I would say to that is I, I be, partly because the People's Vote campaign has been disabled, partly because Jeremy Corbyn doesn't want to talk about Brexit. I mean, he talked about it last night with a certain amount of reluctance. Johnson tried to sort of hammer him on it. Because Joe Swinson isn't kind of, I don't think, sort of commanding the attention in the way that Clegg did in uh, when he... 2010, you know, yeah. I, I agree with Nick era. I think there's, there's, there's a danger that, that, that actually... Look, I hope you're right, but I'm not sure it's going on in the same way across the UK as it was then in Scotland in, a, in that very specific way. And, of course, the other thing that's happened in the campaign... I mean, over the last two or three years, one of the most extraordinary things has been the fact that, you know, I've most days been sitting around tables and there's been Dominic Grieve and there's been Chucker and Munner and there's Anna Subri and there's Caroline Lucas and there's Joe Swinson and there's Stephen Gethins and it's been this kind of people across the parties working together. Once you get into the electoral landscape, and let's be frank, we were tipped into the electoral landscape by Joe Swinson and the, and, SMB, right, yeah. and the SNP and then Jeremy Corbyn feeling he had to follow. And I understand the reasoning for all three. I just happen to think they were wrong. Because but this is the problem. From the Brexit perspective. But this is the problem were, of not having were, one party absolutely. being the party of Remain, which is you, you know, these parties are competing for not only partisan advantage in this election, but they the are future. future positions. Exactly. And I think one of the fascinating things which you you don't see on the Remain side, is it? What is one of the reasons why Nigel Farage pulled his candidates out of Tory-held seats was because his there were a kind of sufficient number of donors kind of shared between the Tory party and the Brexit party yeah. that the squeeze could be put on him, but it became quite yeah. clear that they weren't Well, I thoroughly to... enjoyed his little spats with Aaron Banks in public, because yeah, that's, the, that's what was going on. But they wouldn't be able to run a kind of viable campaign. And I think in a weird way, this, the, the Leave side is benefiting from this greater cohesiveness in this election, and you, know, and and I think it is right now. You know, if you say where we are, it's this asymmetry between the divides and remain and the and the relatively united strength for the Leave vote, which on the first pass of post is what is going to cause them so much harm. And of course, that's why Johnson wanted the election in the first place, because I think deep in his heart, Johnson knows. I think that if there was a final say referendum based on his deal or Theresa, Day, Theresa May's deal or no deal, I think Remain would win. Now. He doesn't need to worry about that if he gets 35, 36, 37, 38, let alone into the 40s in a general election. So that's why he wants this resolved as, a, as, as an electoral issue, not a binary choice referendum. And just finally, if the Tories do win a majority, I mean, what, what does that mean for the Remain campaign? Is it time to then admit defeat? Well, I saw, I interviewed, um, with my daughter, I interviewed Jess Phillips for our podcast the other day. And she said that if Remain lost, she intended to be the Bill Cash <laughs> and I thought that was a great con- a great concept because it's true. I mean, Bill Cash never gave up. So I suspect that 
I don't know, to be honest. I mean, I, I certainly feel if Boris Johnson gets back with a the majority, then it's, it's pretty hard to see where you go in the short and medium term. I, I just find the prospect so horrific, not just because of Brexit. I just think five years of Johnson would be utterly awful for the country and its standing in the world. I mean, one of the one of the reasons why mistakes are so high for the Remain side in this is the Remain side has kind of rejected compromising, you know, fr- fr- from 2016 onwards. I mean, pretty much after the 2017 election, at any point in the last parliament, mm. if the Remain side has decided to say, right, we want to go for a soft Brexit. I think there was they, a period that was possible, with, with, but Theresa May sort of... She she sort of pushed away the forty eight percent. I think is part of the problem. No, I think I think straight after the twenty sixteen referendum she did, but after twenty seventeen, I think if the Remain side in Parliament said right, we're going to take staying in the customs union and basically remaining aligned with the EU on the so called level playing field, the kind of social and environmental rights, you know, that I think they could have secured a majority for in Parliament. That ultimately would have made rejoining at some future point much easier because you wouldn't actually have diverged from EU rules. But, but you know, and what's inter- what's so dramatic about the situation we now find ourselves in is that you know both on both the Leave and Remain sides they've kind of rejected compromise. The Remainers have bet everything on getting a second referendum and stopping the which whole actually thing. is the compromise, by the way, because because Joe Swinson has done the no compromise position. Uh, <laughs> what, and you know Boris Johnson obviously you know he rejected the Theresa May compromise deal and said look we, we hang tough we can get a a cleaner, clearer, more distinctive Brexit. And, and it is interesting that this is why this election is so high stakes, because both sides have gambled it. You know, could, Boris Johnson could lose Brexit altogether in this election. But if, there are, if he wins this election, the Remainers are, are going to be faced with a situation where the UK is going to become a, is going to start diverging from the EU and becoming quite a different, uh, quite different from the EU economic model really quite fast, which essentially, I think, makes rejoining the EU a much, much more difficult proposition to sell because there will be new businesses and new industries that emerge that, that wouldn't be able to survive if you had to go, if you had to kind of revert all your rules going back to, 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 to regain alignment with the EU. But I think the, the other thing that's been so lacking from this election debate in relation to Brexit, so people said, oh, there was too much in the, in the first TV debate about Brexit, but actually there wasn't. And there's still the, 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 the sort of fundamental lie at the heart of the Get Brexit Done slogan, when we know this is just the first phase and then the really difficult stuff starts. And even with Jeremy Corbyn as well, saying we would negotiate this deal in a few months and then six months for a referendum, I think they're both being pretty unrealistic about it. And, you know, Get Brexit Done and focus on the other stuff is a perfectly good message. I don't define it as a strategy because actually he won't be able to do that if and when he gets elected with, uh, with a majority. And I think that's why this, why I am finding this election so depressing and so dispiriting, because actually pretty much any outcome now is going to be unsatisfactory, I think, for the country. And that is evidence of the fact we're in a mess. James and Alistair, thank you. Hello, I'm Olivia Potts and I'm Spectator Life's Vintage Chef and I'm here to tell you about the new Spectator Life website where you can find articles on food and drink, travel, fashion, theatre, cinema and so much more. And you can also find all the Table Talk podcasts where Lara Prendergast and I talk to notable people about their life through food. Just go to life.spectator.co.uk After Brexit, will Venexit be next? In December, Venetians will go to the polls for a fifth independence referendum. Venexiteers believe that the island's attachment to the mainland has led to such bad governance that the city itself is under existential threat. 
as detailed by the Venetian journalist Manfred Manera in this week's issue. To discuss, I'm joined by Anna Summers-Cox, editor of the art newspaper and former head of the charity Venice in Peril, and Ferdinando Giuliano, a columnist of Bloomberg View and La Repubblica. Ferdinando, there's a piece in this week's Spectator which talks about the possibility of Venexit. Can you explain to listeners why the Venetians are holding an independence referendum in December? Uh, well, it's it's not really. A, I mean, it's a, it's an independent referendum of the city from the other parts of the city. So, you know, we should be very clear about about this because in the past there has actually been a strong pro-independence movement in the region of Veneto, which were uh, I was calling for independence from Italy. Whereas here is a referendum that is being held because promoting committees believe that the interests of the city of Venice, as most of the world knows it, would be best protected and preserved if the city of Venice were to detach itself from the nearby boroughs of Mestre and Marghera, which are on the mainland, uh, which are at the moment are part of the city as you know the kind of local authority as as it were and now these two boroughs which are actually you know some would say towns in their own right have been growing in size over the last few years as the venetians have moved out of the city of venice to the mainland because it's uh, more convenient cheaper and is also much more uh, you know attractive in a way to to rent your flats in the city of Venice if you own one or even sell it or put it on Airbnb most likely. So, um, you know, these boroughs have been uh, have been growing and their interest, the proponents of the referendum claim, are opposed to what's needed for the city of Venice. Also, politicians will spend much more time trying to appeal to the voters in these two boroughs and uh, possibly neglect what's happening in the city. So the proponents of the referendum would like Venice to be, you know, run as it were on its own right and voters to be just the residents of the city of Venice. And Manfred says in his piece this week that Venice is no longer under the control of its inhabitants and Venice in peril has called this a democratic emergency. Do, do you see it that way? Uh, the great question is whether holding a referendum will actually change the situation because by now, there are so many outside interests who have invested in Venice from the Chinese to the great big Turkish port management company that owns most of the port in Venice. The question is whether, you know, if you vote for Venice, to Venice, the historic centre, as it gets called now, which of course means Venice, as we all know and love it, if that becomes independent, whether it really can become independent, um, and whether the central government would actually give it special advantages, which it would need. At the moment, the only thing you could be sure of is it would give people a psychological boost if, for once, because there have been various other referenda which have all been lost. For once, this one passed and Venice got back its sense of itself. Ferdinando, you've also written recently about the flooding which we've seen in Venice over the past few weeks. And you've said that it's partly down to climate change, but there's another part of it that's man-made. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think in terms of climate change, what's striking is just the frequency at which these extraordinary floods are happening over the last couple of decades. Now, of course, you know, Venice has always been subjected to floods and, you know, the most dramatic flood on record happened, you know, in the 1960s. So people who don't really believe climate change is behind this would point to the fact that obviously in the 1960s people weren't concerned about climate change. But if you look at the frequency, there have been, you know, the majority of the exceptional floods which have happened over the last century or so have occurred in the last 
two decades. So I think this is telling us that something striking is going on and rising sea levels could be a part of this together with exceptional weather conditions. But obviously, you know, you can try to some extent to deal with climate change. And certainly people have been thinking about how to protect Venice for quite a long time, especially after these extraordinary floods in the 60s. Trouble is this project which politicians have come up with called Mose, partly after Prophet Moses who parted the Red Sea, has been delayed and delayed and delayed because of bureaucratic impediments and also corruption. There have been a number of uh, trials which have found uh, some politicians guilty of, um, of corruption. So this is late. It should have really already been in place, but it's been delayed by another few years. And uh, people are wondering whether it will ever work because you know the, the works have taken so long that some of the parts could actually be obsolete by the time it's tried for the first time properly and also some people have been skeptical of the of the you know of Mose uh, throughout and think it's just a giant project which has sucked several billion euros but which will prove ultimately ineffective so only time will tell whether the Mose works or not I hope you know we we find we we get to find out sooner rather than later because obviously as we see climate change and the weather and floods do not really wait for Mose to be working Anna, what's your assessment of the status of the Mose project? Well, it's supposed to be 93% finished. The trouble is, as Ferdinando said, there is quite considerable doubts about the design of the project in the first place, and also certain technical problems have already been discovered. So shall we say that the Venetians are beginning to lack hope, but also faith in the whole project? I believe that at this point, in order to make sure that it is done properly, and if there are any problems that these are dealt with, that the Dutch, who, after all, they are particularly at risk from sea level storm surges and sea level, sea level rise, is that the, the Dutch should be got in to supervise the work that is needs to be done to finish it and to suggest any changes that need to be made. And then the Venetians would trust what is being built because under present circumstances there is no faith in them. And Ferdinando, how has the Venetian referendum gone down within the rest of Italy? I mean, I think I'm right in saying that Rome gave its blessing for it. I mean, are the Italians generally in favour of it? Uh, well, I mean, to be honest, people weren't really talking about it. It's not well, Certainly before the flood, it was something which uh, most people had not even uh, really read about. I would say after the flood, there is a little bit more uh, publicity over what's going on. I mean, it's mainly seen as a local issue. And these things, you know, happen in um, communities, in towns. You know, there are times when towns want to split away from uh, neighboring, uh, you know, boroughs, you know, and it's seen as a kind of local local issue. I would say overall, I mean, many politi- politicians seem to be, most politicians seem to be against the idea. After all, this is, you know, their uh, local power base and, uh, you know, they're reluctant to see it split. But there are a number of, you know, artists and intellectuals who are uh, now waking up to the idea that Venice could be best run, you know, if it was run by itself, if it, run, you know, if it was run by itself. At the moment, the, the, big, the big focus is on making sure that, you know, Venice is, uh, Venice is okay, you know, that the damages from the flood are dealt with. And as I said, that Mose is completed. And if it doesn't work, that, you know, there is a plan B of sort because, you know, Venice would still need protection. But in under, there is no plan B. This is the trouble. There is absolutely yes, nothing yes. that can be done to hold the water back unless the Mose is made to work. 
That, that, that's absolutely right. So, you know, my, my point is exactly that, you know, people are calling for a plan B because there is a growing understanding that, you know, there are huge question marks around Moser. And you know, what's even more scary is that there is no plan B, as you said. And Anna, just finally, can I ask you whether you think the referendum is likely to succeed? It's a pity that actually it's happening now because there is such confusion and such turmoil after these great floods that it will certainly affect people's judgment one way or another. They won't take the long view. In the short term, I don't think it would make any difference even if the separation happened because all the relationships with Rome would have to be worked out, the relationships with local government in the Veneto, the question of financing, you'd have to have elections to have mayors and all the government, I mean, local government officials and so on. So, as I say, it's a great pity that the the referendum is happening now. Thank you, Anna and Ferdinando. This episode is sponsored by More Than a Number, the brand new podcast from the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales. And finally, Thomas W. Hodgkinson writes in this week's issue about poets with the followings of rock stars. Nope, they're not the traditional print poets you might know, but Instagram poets whose pithy and sometimes fairly cheesy words have led to a renaissance in poetry sales. Here's one for you by Rupi Kaur, an Insta poet with four million followers. Your voice does to me what autumn does to trees. You call to say hello, and my clothes fall naturally. So, is this really poetry? Thomas joins me now, together with our literary editor, Sam Leith. Thomas, can you start by explaining to listeners what exactly is an Insta-poet? Well, I suppose strictly an Insta-poet is anyone who publishes any poetry on Instagram. But I think there's a, there's a longer answer which is to say someone who has written specifically in order to do that. And what sort of poetry are they writing? Uh, (laughs) um, (laughs) It's, I've got to choose my words carefully here, it's poetry that's instantly comprehensible. As you'd guess for the restricted space, it's usually something very short. It might even be six to ten words as short as that and a large proportion of it has a kind of motivational theme to it it seems more and more like kind of bumper sticker wisdom that's been chopped up to resemble poetry now that that's that's not that's not a fair summation of all instagram poetry but there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there which is you know bafflingly successful fluff well, you say in the piece that they're almost becoming sort of rock stars. Sam, is this something that you've noticed? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been sort of bubbling under for a while and social media has obviously meant that, you know, there's a lot more available and a lot more visible. You know, in a way, the sort of arguments that have been going on now about, you know, or oh, Insta poets, poets, is a sort of version of what was going on 20 years ago when slam poets were kind of the coming thing and, and sort of the oral delivery of poetry was, you know, sort of so-called page poets would say, well, you know, they're not really doing poetry, they're just standing up in a club and, you know, rapping, essentially. So it's a, I mean, it's sort of old argument between, you know, two different forms, I think. And I wonder what the point of that argument is. Who cares about the answer? What's interesting is whether or not what they're doing is interesting. Yes, I think that's, I, I mean, I think that's exactly the point, because there isn't a sort of limit in bandwidth, effectively, that says that, you know, every time you allow 
a Holly McNish or a Kate Tempest into the canon, you know, you have to kind of eject Emily Dickinson at the other end. You know, there's, there's, there's room for all of them. They don't eat each other's lunch. So this this is something I think that that we have to be careful about. You know, I've I've written this piece in the Spectator about instant poetry, and quite a large section of that is devoted to pointing out how terrible a lot of it is, how entertainingly terrible. You know, there's almost a kind of perverse pleasure to be had in going and looking for the worst bits, but it would be a mistake to be judging instant poetry, which I think is a new form a new kind of mode of poetry by precisely the same criteria that we would judge poetry that we read in a in a printed book yeah i mean i think don patterson when there was a row last year when rebecca watts wrote as a distinguished page poet wrote a very cross piece in pn review saying essentially you know all this insta poetry is trash don patterson said well you know made made exactly that point and he said well it's it's like saying you know, pointing out that T.S. Eliot wasn't a great hip-hop artist. Um, you know, true, but only gets you so far. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the criticisms that Rebecca Watts made against the Instant Poets were v- valid ones from the point of view of page poetry, which is that kind of in terms of complexity and artistry and craft, a lot of the time, they well, they were certainly doing something very different, and she argued something lesser in terms of the concentration of craft than, you know, good page poets are doing. But, but at the you know, same the time, but at the same time it's, it's for a medium thing. that isn't encouraging you to zoom in and pour over. Yes, exactly. And it's interesting that one of the a sort of crux of that argument was that instant poets were being praised for their honesty, as honesty was a you know, a sort of prime aesthetic criterion by which you'd you'd hold them and Watts said, again with some justice tradition, you know, why is honesty something we look for necessarily in poetry? And, you know, Shakespeare said, the truest poetry is the most feigning. So there's a sort of absolute <laughs> poetic divide there. That sounds like an Insta post. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> Everyone has killer lines and quite easy to understand ones. The honesty is important, though, because it is. it does feel different. You know, if we can take for a moment our kind of snooty critic's hat off and try to understand what's really happening here and why people love it. I mean, this is important. This is interesting to to see. There are millions of followers. You know, the top three Insta poets measured by their popularity, by how many followers they have on Instagram, each have over a million followers. I think Rupi Kaur has three and the next person has two and the next, you know, one. Why, you know, what is the appeal? And and it, it, it is... It is expressing something that that seems to come straight from the heart and that hits straight at the heart of so many people. I'm sounding somewhat soppy myself now, <laughs> but but you have to acknowledge it. Yeah, and you can write something much cleverer than that. Also, it's a and not get so many likes. It's a, but it's a different form as well, and that, that you know, I mean, here we're seeing where poetry shades, as it always has, into the territory of the aphorism, for instance, mm. and in the aphorism can be extremely gnomic and complex and can be essentially sort of a, a nugget of folk wisdom memorably expressed. I mean, Don Patterson, again, who I think is an interesting figure in this because he's not only the editor who publishes the print versions of a lot of these instaports, but he's also a kind of serious and distinguished page poet in himself, and he's found himself kind of on... You know, on both sides of the argument, which is which at is once, the right place, which to I be. think is exactly the right place to be, <laughs> and he's published always on with any argument. 
you know, he's published collections of aphorisms, he's published aphorisms himself, and he's very interesting about the fugitive nature of aphorisms and that idea that, you you know, they can morph between being something like a rock lyric and being something like a sort of, you know, Zen cone or something. Well, well um, it's, it's, it's great you, that you've brought up the aphorism because if you try to trace back the origin of Insta poetry, it wasn't always with us. It seems to have arisen as a new version of what began as aphorisms being published on Instagram. So it would be a, a quote by Hunter S. Thompson, attributed to Hunter S. Thompson, and presented in a particular way. Often it would have first, because this is, this is another thing which is fascinating about Insta Poetry, is that it's a, it's a verbal form delivered through a visual medium. And so it's always a lot of care is taken as to how the poem is presented. It's not just you know, on your note app, or it could be. That might be a very good way of doing it. But so the to go back to the aphorism, it's presented, it's often typed on old fa- in, on an old-fashioned typewriter, then photographed, then posted. So it looks like, you know, straight from the typewriter of Hunter himself. And the Instapoets took that visual kick and simply started to present their own words, the, mes- the subliminal message being instant classic. You know, you know, ancient wisdom or whatever, because it'd be Lao Tzu or Confucius mm. or Hunter S. Thompson, and then Ruby Kaur or R. H. Sin or R. M. Drake or Lang Liev or whoever it was. It's it's really tempting to have a go oneself. Sam, are there certain sort of poetic forms that are particularly popular on Instagram, or is it a free form? Um, well, I I couldn't claim to be an expert now. I mean, I think Tom is. I mean, I don't see them generally taking the ones I've seen taking sort of trad poetic forms. I mean, of course, you know, a haiku or a tanker would be well-suited to Instagram and, you know, a sort and of du- double sestina, not so much. Mm. But generally they're not formal poets in that sense of poets who are working with, you know, trad form and metrics and rhyme schemes. And they seem to be writing a sort of free verse. I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, the, kind of a lot of the ones I've seen, the ones you quote, use sort of rhetorical devices more than traditional poetical, you know, sort of formal verse. So they'll use a lot of repetition, you know, as a sort of, you know, anaphoric kind of behaviour where where the lines will begin with the same phrase and change or, or epistrophe will they'll sort of end. I mean, a lot of sort of repetition and patterning that way rather than, you know, strictly a sort of A, B, A, B, B, C, C type. Why scheme. do you think that is? Partly, I think probably it's easier. It's more direct and easy to understand, um, quicker and quicker. Yeah, I mean, yeah, these easy. guys. These guys will post two or three things a day. Yeah, easy equals quick because you know if yeah. you're writing a sestina, that's really hard. Um, <laughs> Have you done writing, that recently? Not lately. I've written a lot of rhyme royal. Lately. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've read some of your poetry. Oh dear. <laughs> have On you? Instagram? Yeah. Where are you? Where are you? I don't. I, I don't think I've been. <laughs> Post to get in my poetry? No, no, not recently. I think years ago I stumbled upon a volume uh, from 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 many years back, and, and there was <laughs> a um, no, no, there was uh, there was a very passionate poem, very very heartfelt. Oh and, no! And 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 it was it was superb. Oh, thank um, you. That's good. <laughs> good thing I was. Thinking. I haven't written anything heartfelt for years. <laughs> I can't remember the title. I'm sorry. Withered old raisin. Thomas, just just to finish, were there, were there any Insta poets who you came to enjoy? Well, so Rupi Kaur is the is the most famous Insta poet, and in fact, she's 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 she's. It's more complicated when it comes to her because 
I think she became famous first for other reasons and is so much bigger than, than, than the rest. But I, I have come to admire her work, but only when I went to it in book form, funnily enough. I don't, I'm not such a fan of her, actual, of her you know, individual posts, but to go back to the honesty point, when you, when you read her in book form, it just, just keeps, keeps hitting you. And in the end, you throw up your hands and say, <laughs> you win. And it should be said, there's actually a, a kind of virtue to you know, something that works in aggregate. That's a spontaneity. And if you look at someone, you know, that's a line of American poetry that goes through sort of from Whitman down to Ginsburg and so on. You know, Whitman obviously has these kind of extraordinarily memorable lines, but actually Leaves of Grass is a sort of open weave, as we know, because he kept revising it and republishing it. You know, very spontaneous feeling kind of poetic experience that's yeah. not tight and, you know, closely closely patterned. No, I completely you know. agree. But, but but be warned, though, not all Insta poets improve in aggregate. Right. <laughs> I can believe that too. <laughs> Thank you, Thomas and Sam. And that's everything this week. If you pick up the issue, you can read everything we've talked about, as well as more from George Osborne, Douglas Murray and William Shawcross. Plus, you can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12 at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. And we'll even throw in a free £20 Amazon voucher just in time for Christmas. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. Thanks to our sponsor, More Than a Number the new podcast from ICAEW. Here presenter Louise Cooper in discussion with thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Are businesses ill-prepared to cope with climate change? Is workplace inequality inevitable? And do businesses really have an age problem? Simply search for more than a number in your podcast app to download now.